Hey everyone, Giordano here from the Juice Media. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to our Honest Government ad series. This is episode 13, a companion to our latest Honest Government ad about the economic recovery. Hello, I'm from the Australian Government. As we head into the worst economic recession in living history, what the nation needs now is leadership, evidence-based policies and bold vision. And if we have those. At the end of our last episode, in which I interviewed Naomi Klein, and if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to check it out, I said that I would occasionally try and also have guests on here who don't necessarily share my own views and perhaps have some debates. So I thought, let's give it a shot. You know, baby steps. Let's not jump straight into the deep end. I thought maybe, you know, pick someone not too challenging. But then I thought, fuck it, let's just jump straight in. And so my guest today is Malcolm Turnbull, you know, our former prime minister leader of the government that we've been impersonating for the last three years. Cool and normal. Malcolm has just published his autobiography, A Bigger Picture, and I thought he would be the perfect guest to bring on and talk about the topic of our recent Honest Government ad. Now, as you know, I disagree with a lot of the things that the Turnbull government did. A lot of people were hurt by this government's policies, but I didn't invite Malcolm here to criticize his policies. We already did that in the videos. Instead, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about solutions and the future, and specifically about the future of humanity which, as scientists tell us, will be defined this decade by the decisions that our governments take or don't take on the climate emergency. And if there's anyone who is intimately acquainted with the obstacles that lie in the way of genuine climate action in Australia, it's Malcolm Turnbull, who was removed as leader of his own political party when he attempted to make even mild progress on this very issue. So I guess I wanted to take this opportunity to ask our former PM some pretty direct questions and try and mine him for insights and advice about how we can move forward from where we are. I hope there's some information here that's useful to the climate movement, but especially to liberal voters who care about evidence-based policies and about our environment. I think much of this conversation is addressed to you. Clearly, I've jumped straight into the deep end of the world of political interviews. Malcolm is Malcolm. He knows how to do this. And I, well, I'm a complete noob. This is my first interview with a politician, let alone a former prime minister. I'm no Lee Sales, so please bear with me. Uh, But I do try and do my best to steer the conversation towards solutions. It's a bit longer than normal because Malcolm loves to talk, as he famously does very well. But I hope you get something out of it, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Malcolm Turnbull. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, You're coming through crisp and clear in HD, so I assume you have fiber to the premises. That's very good. Um, No, I don't actually. I don't actually. I'm on the. I'm. uh, I've got uh, on the hybrid fiber coax part of the network, but getting very good service, very good connectivity. Quick response. You're you're switched on. Okay, good. so thank you so much for joining us. Look, um, assume you know the show that we produce, The Honest Government Ads. Um, if not, this might get a bit awkward when you realize what it is we do, but I'm pretty sure you've seen our work. No, no, I've um, seen them. I've seen them. They're, 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 they're very, uh, very seditious, often unfair, but uh, always very entertaining. Wonderful. We started making the show when just before um, you became prime minister. And we went on to yeah. do it on a monthly basis pretty much until you were ousted from government in mid-2018. So first of all, thank you. you. You gave us a lot of material to work with. Um, in fact, I mean, we literally couldn't have done this show without you. So I feel like we're kind of like colleagues in a metaphysical kind of way. So thank you. Right. Although That's I have good. to say your successor, Scott Morrison, is proving to be even more generous uh, with material, with shitfuckery, as we call it. But we'll come to that in a minute. Um, first, the most important question that I wanted to ask you is... Um, I don't know if you recall, but in mid-2017, you sent us an email, and I say you because it came from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, from the National Symbols Officer, 
And this is what it said. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It said, Dear Sir and Madam, it, is brought, it has been brought to our attention that the Juice Media has used an Australian government logo, which contains the Commonwealth Coat of Arms as, and the symbol similar to the logo in your videos. And then it cites a bunch of acts that we may have breached, including yeah. the criminal code and the trademarks code and all sorts of things. And then it ends by saying it would be appreciated that, uh, if you would ensure that the Juice Media Productions do not use the Australian government logo to avoid... This is the key part to avoid the juice media productions being mistaken for Australian government material. So when I read that, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious because, and I want to ask you a genuine question. Does it concern you at all that all it takes to mistake the, our honest government ads for the actual government's communications and policies is the use of the coat of arms? I mean, doesn't that say something about that government's policies? Well, I know. I think it, I think what it, I think what it says uh, is that the, you know, there's a pretty standard sort of letter that goes out of uh, PM&C, I think, when people use the Australian government coat of arms or um, or something that looks quite like it. But uh, I don't think anyone could mistake your honest government ads for uh, Australian government ads. And they look good, but, you know, I, I think it is, I think it's a very, it is, as I said, it's, uh, it's, it's funny and seditious, um, uh, satire and uh, and and often unfair, but as all satire is, or not all, most satire is unfair. Good. All right, I'm going to have to end up defending my work soon here if I if I'm not careful. Yeah, well, you just, no, I mean, look, I'm happy, but seriously, the you know you you can't uh, you've got to be a bit careful in government. I mean, governments and politicians. One of the thing big mistakes they often make is taking themselves too seriously. Right. And uh, I don't think I've ever done that um i've sort of certainly tried not to um so yeah poking poking fun at people in positions of power is a, is a important part of our political life i guess right and i i think it shows that we you know we, we live in a relatively healthy healthy democracy um that you know that that can happen it's really it's it's the way it should be i'm going to ask you one last self-indulgent question uh a week after we received that email that I just mentioned, your government introduced a bill that uh, made it a crime to impersonate the government. Now, I assume this is in response to Labor's <laughs> so-called Medi-Scare campaign. Yeah, yeah. However, yeah. some people pointed out that technically it could also criminalize the honest government ads. There is an exemption in the bill which says does not include conduct engaged in solely for genuine satirical purposes. Yeah. Now, as a lawyer, you'll know this language is, is ambiguous. We were all left to ponder deep existential questions like what is genuine satire and what is non-genuine satire. And your Attorney General, George, George Brandis, during the Senate committee hearings over this bill, held up a copy mm. of that logo and he refused to admit under questioning that it, you know, it was clearly genuine satire. He, he went on this, it was a bit like a Clark and Dole kind of skip. But now that I have the chance, now that I have the chance, I have to ask you, Malcolm Turnbull, 29th Prime Minister of Australia, are our honest government ads genuine satire? Well, I think they. I think they're clearly intended to be. I think they're. Well, I, I, I would. I would assume. I would assume they were. I mean, I think the. I can't recall the exact, you know, drafting of the of the bill, right? But you're absolutely right. It was designed to deal with the situation, uh, with the Medi-Scare. and I mean, just to back up on that, just to remember the context. Uh, what happened was Labor sent out text messages which were signed Medicare, which said, you know, the Liberals are going to sell Medicare and, you know, et cetera. 
and it was very influential in the election result. So it was it was a shockingly dishonest thing to do. And you would think it was illegal because the, the AFP took the view that because it was uh, seeking to impersonate Medicare as opposed to a Commonwealth officer, it wasn't an offence. So, so the legislation was designed to, you know, pick up that obvious anomaly. Uh, and those text messages were not sat, were not intended. They were not satire at all. They were intended to deceive people. And I, I don't think uh, anyone would imagine that your honest government ads are intended to deceive people into thinking it's actually an ad by the Australian government or like a, a real ad by the Australian government. So I guess in that sense, it's definitely satire, yeah. Wonderful. This is, I, I've been waiting many years to get this confirmation um, and now we can finally well, that, come out of hiding. Right, no, that, legal, that legal advice is worth exactly what you've paid for it. Great. Well, um, I was going to ask you if... You I think, I, but I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. No, over well, now issue. we can come out of hiding. We know that we won't be uh, thrown in jail. Um, yeah. But um, I, I wanted... assumed you were doing this broadcast from your cell. That's actually. right, <laughs> from my prison cell. Um, yeah. Well, in that case, um, Malcolm, do you reckon, given you know everything that we've been through um, with this, uh, would we be able to get an endorsement of the Honest Government ads? Are you able to say something like, this is genuine satire approved by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull? No, no. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, no. You won't go no, that No, no. If, uh, if you want to, you'll have to get, if you want someone to give you a blank check, you'll have to try someone else. Okay. That was worth a try. <laughs> no, you, 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 you take, and I'm sure you're happy to, you take full responsibility for what you, what you do in your uh, satirical work. That's, that's, that's as it should be. Great. All right, I'm going to let's turn to more um, pressing questions. Yeah. As you know, this podcast is a companion to our recent Honest Government ad, which looks at the economic recovery from the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. I don't know if you feel this way, but to me, this feels like a historic moment that we're in. We face a massive recession, which threatens the li livelihoods of people for decade, yeah. the coming decade. Um, but it also presents an opportunity to invest in creating jobs to boost the economy, like a bit like FDR's New Deal. And there's no greater nation-building project required right now than decarbonizing our economy. Instead, Scott Morrison, mm -hmm. Angus Taylor, and that crowd are embarking on what they're calling a gas-fired recovery. I mean, to me, it seems like lunacy. It flies in the face not just of economics and the you know like the Finkel review that 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 you commissioned and the advice that came out of that, but also in the face of history, what to do in these kind of situations. So this is what inspired our honest government ad. So my first question to you is: If you had survived the leadership spill in 2018 and you were still prime minister in this moment, uh, which you couldn't have foreseen before, like COVID-19 is kind of like uncharted territory, but if you were still prime minister and you were leading the nation in this historic moment. What would you be doing? Would we still need to make this honest government ad? Well, I would hope not. Um, well, I mean, it's up to you whether you, you know whether you want to make an ad uh, a sat satirical ad is up to you. But but I am firmly of the view that we need a green new deal in Australia. Uh, that the time is is really appropriate. You know, the time is now, uh, and we need a and the obvious. Uh, target is, as you say, the decarbonisation of our energy sector, and we know how to do that. It, uh, you know, and we can. I mean, it, look, basically, Giordano, what this would involve doing is bringing forward investment uh, that 
we expect to happen in over the next couple of decades and bringing forward and doing it sooner. So in other words, retiring some of these old coal-fired power stations instead of in, you know, 2035, in 2025 or 2027, you know, and just bringing for that forward uh, because the, you know, the, 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 the one thing we know, I mean, this is, the, the, this is the key, the key point. We know we have a pressing need to cut our greenhouse gas emissions. And in addition to that, we now know that we can do so and have cheaper and cheaper energy and reliable energy. So what is holding us up? That's because, you know, in the days when like when I was John Howard's environment minister back in 2007, in those days, you could say if you were a critic of renewables, you could say, hang on, it costs more. You know, I'm not prepared to pay that much extra for my energy to save the planet. But now we can do both. And so, so you're absolutely right in saying this, we must not miss this opportunity. And I think there is a real issue about investing in gas infrastructure. I mean, you've got to be, you've got to, look, I'm not denying or suggesting that gas is, is anything but an important fuel right at the moment. But the one thing we do know is that it's on the way out. You know, when, it's a, when they call it a transitional fuel, what they mean is it is going to assist the transition between coal and an all-renewable energy sector. So you've got to ask yourself, why, and this is the point Lucy was making on Q&A the other night, why would you spend a fortune in really expensive gas transportation infrastructure pipelines, which you may, you know, will you will you get... 10 years out of them? Will you get five years out of them? Will you get, you're certainly not going to get, we hope you're not going to get 20 years out of them. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you are building, uh, you know, energy storage infrastructure, pumped hydro, I mean, Snowy 2.0, the the infrastructure of Snowy 2.0, once it's built, it will be being used in a a century from now. I mean, Snowy 1.0, you know, it it was, it, you know, it's not, it's about 70 years old, much of it. So, you know, the, if you're going to be putting a lot of money into energy infrastructure, we should be putting it into infrastructure that we know that, you know, is, is going to last. And, and, and so my, my point is very simple, simply whether you look at the engineering, whether you look at the economics, whether you look at the environmental considerations, a Green New Deal is what we need to do now. I want to get onto that in, into more detail because I'm really interested in the, you know, the 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 you know what you talk about is the, com- the importance of compromising and and the right the, um, the hard right of the fact the you know the right wing faction of the Liberal Party, but I wanted to first talk to you about cl- the his- the broader picture of climate policy in Australia. There are many things we disagree mm-hmm. on, but I think we can agree on, you know, that we both care about climate change. Um, I would like to have a sincere conversation. I say sincere because I, I really believe you care about this. It's not. It's not really about believing. The record shows that you went to the wire mm. over this very issue, not once but twice. First in 2009 mm. when Tony Abbott rolled you as opposition leader when you supported the emission trading scheme under Labor. And then again in 2018 with your own climate policy, the, the National Energy Guarantee, when you tried to introduce climate policy, which wasn't even particularly ambitious climate policy, and yet you were again removed from the leadership, this time bringing in Scott Morrison. And to date, we still don't have a, a serious climate legislation. 
So I think it's fair mm. to say that you do care about this issue. I'm, I'm going to give you that because I don't think any, anyone risks everything for something they don't really believe in. And so coming from that common ground that we share, I was wondering if you could help us understand why we're still stuck in this coal-stained pit of inaction. And also because many people are confused by the winding history of climate action failure in this country. Can you give us a condensed history lesson? Take us back to the, in time to that crucial period between 2009 and 2013 I mean, you might want to take it back further, but that's when Australia could, and for a brief period, did adopt serious climate legislation. Our emissions went down. And mm. then Tony Abbott took took over your position, um, burnt it all down, and to this day, we just don't have climate policy. Can you walk us through this period of history as you see it from your yeah. perspective? Well, well, look, basically, you've got to go back a little bit before that. And a good starting point is 2006. Howard's Prime Minister... He was being he and his government were being seen as being um, unwilling to re, you know respond to the demands of taking action on climate and global warming. And Howard uh, could sense that, and he got work started with strong encouragement from me on a an emissions trading scheme. Um, and this was done by Peter Shergold, and Howard announced, the government would adopt an emissions trading scheme as its policy. So Howard went to the 07 election with an ETS as his policy, as indeed did Rudd. And anyway, the election was fought, Labor won, uh, Howard lost his seat, and we go into opposition. And almost immediately, the forces on the right of the Liberal Party started to mobilise against taking action on climate change. And they were joined by people in the National Party, particularly Barnaby Joyce. Uh, and, you know, they were supported by the fossil fuel lobby and they were supported by the right wing media. You know, I became leader of the Liberal Party and leader of the opposition in um, 2008. And I was my view was that we should get a bipartisan agreement on an emissions trading scheme and pass it. I was criticised from the right of the party and in the media for supporting a Labor policy, which was always bullshit. I was supporting an emissions trading scheme, which had been John Howard's policy. And, you know, that was basically what brought uh, us to the, you know, edge of a big leadership battle at the end of 2009. Now, there are a lot of other things going on, and they're all in my book, which I encourage you to... Uh, to buy and not uh, take a uh, a um, yes, that's good. Don't 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 take a pirated copy sent to you by your friendly uh, uh, Liberal Party uh, staffer. But <laughs> uh, many people have done. Um, but anyway, so Abbott, you know, there was a challenge to my leadership. My position was pretty weak at the time, and I lost the leadership by one vote. And Abbott then adopted this direct action policy, which was essentially one of spending money to pay people to, you know, plant trees and, you know, well, plant trees, basically, that's kind of what it was mostly about. And this was really just a fig leaf of a policy that he and Greg Hunt had put together to get through the double dissolution election that they expected Rudd to call in early 2010 which is what Rudd should have done. Because what Rudd should have done, the, the Senate having uh, blocked the emissions trading scheme twice, Rudd should have gone to a double dissolution election. election. He yeah. won it. 
and then the ETS would have been passed. And if it had been passed, either with our support while I was leader or after a DD, it would now be about as controversial as the GST. It would just be part of the fiscal furniture. Anyway, uh, Rudd, you know, lost his nerve. Uh, then he lost the leadership. Uh, Gillard, you know, there when there was the election, you know, Gillard um, scraped in with the in alliance with the Greens in 2010, and she introduced an emissions trading scheme. Um, she had, in the course of the election, the 2010 election, she had most unwisely said there will not be a carbon tax under uh, the government I lead, right? She gets into government and she then introduces an emissions trading scheme. So it, what she was introducing was an ETS. There's no question about that. But for reasons best known to herself, she said it was a carbon tax, which, of course, meant she hung herself out to dry on the, you know, uh, pledge there'll be no carbon tax under the government I lead. And Abbott hammered and hammered and hammered at that. And, um, you know, that was, that became his great, you know, Abbott had two, he basically had two propositions, you know, stop, uh, you know, get rid of the carbon tax and stop the boats. That was basically his two policies. He gets elected in 2013. The carbon tax is repealed, you know, as it, I mean, it would have been an extraordinary breach of faith had he not gone ahead with that. And I had, obviously, he was very keen to do so. And, uh, you know, there we were basically in a, in a mess. I mean, Abbott wanted to repeal the, re the renewable energy target. You know, those of us inside the government managed to persuade him that we should negotiate a, a trimming of it to a more, you know, more realistic level more practical level, which we did. Uh, so that was good. Uh, and then Abbott, you know, is replaced by me. I become leader at the end of 2015. And we've then got to work out what is a long-term, uh, you know, policy that integrates climate and energy. And what we came up with was what's known as the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee. And basically, it was, I think, it, I think it's actually the best energy policy we've had. So anyway, that was the, and as you know, there was a, you know, revolt uh, from people, people on the back bench, and of course, ultimately people on the front bench over the RET, which sort of uh, was the lead up to the leadership coup. Now, I, in uh, 2018, now, I remain disappointed and, and somewhat puzzled that after my removal, the the neg was not reintroduced. It, the fact that it hasn't been legislated just underlines the extent to which, and this is really the concluding point, the coalition is held hostage by this toxic alliance of climate denialism. You know, right wing populism within the party, right wing uh, uh, right wing media, principally Murdoch's media, and of course the fossil fuel lobby and out of that troika, the one that is most understandable, of course, is the fossil fuel lobby. Sure. I mean, I totally get it. If you yeah. own a gas well or a or a you know an oil, a coal mine, you want to sell your your stuff. I get that. Uh, but why the right right wing populists have both here and in the United States turned what should be a question of physics into a question of identity or belief is bizarre.
Yeah, no, great. Well, thanks for that that uh, that overview. Um, I want to ask you about the. You've just kind of brought us into the present, or at least up to twenty eighteen, with um, the the leadership spill. Um, and you know, in your book and um, in various places, you've spoken about you know the importance of compromise. You know, the in in, in politics, it's uh, you know there's a lot of compromising to do. But in your book, you you really kind of you know you you shed light on on the situation. You refer. Like page 163, you talk about the right-wing faction of the Liberal Party. You say keeping the party together means giving into them. You've described them as, quote, a determined minority terrorizing the majority into submission. Again, page 269, um, you refer to them as the enemy and as terrorists who are willing to, quote, blow the show up if they don't get what they want. Is there really any way of compromising? I mean, you don't negotiate and compromise with terrorists, um, to use your word. That, that just kind of makes them more extreme. Is there any way of it's what I'm trying to get at is with this kind of crowd with this faction in the Liberal Party is it really possible for this political party the 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 coalition government to ever pass meaningful climate um, legislation is there you know is, no, there, I think is there a way that question, I think well I think the okay I uh, Giordano I think what I'd say is I think that it is impossible uh well at the moment i mean obviously you know things change people come and go uh but right now it is simply not possible for the liberal national party coalition in the federal parliament to support legislation which would integrate climate and energy policy in a way that would effectively uh reduce our tra our emissions and transition to a zero emission energy sector and they have got a there is there is in that right wing and 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 you know the look you know there are people at the core of that group and there are people who are associated with it so you're dealing in you know in some 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 there's a little bit of ambiguity here but there are people that are prepared to blow the joint up if they don't get what they want so if i, I mean, understand so if I understand so correctly, the answer, the answer is they can't handle it. Okay, yeah. and so to take that to a, a, another level of, of, of abstraction, if you will, what you're saying is the the Liberal National Party, in its current form, is incompatible with the continuation of human life on this planet. Would that be fair? A fair statement? I'm not, I'm not saying that. That's, <laughs> well, no, well, that's, that's what I, that's what I'm hearing. I mean, you, I mean, that's uh, uh, you're not you're not Giordano. That's that's nonsense. You're not hearing that at all. You're you are that's. You, you, you've heard, unless you've, there's something wrong with those little uh, uh, speakers you've got in your ears, uh, you've got, you're hearing what I said. Um, it, this is a, a really poisonously vexed policy issue. It's one of the most important, if not the most important policy challenge that we face. And the coalition, as presently constituted, is not capable of dealing with it effectively. That's a fact. And 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 it, and, it, and it is because and and you know the but to deal with and to, it, in, and, and in order thing, well that, let me just mm -hmm. I'll tell you let me mm -hmm. I'll cut straight to the chase here I'll Go save on. you save you beating around the bush the only things that I think that will cause a change of policy change of position on the part of the coalition uh, in the foreseeable future is a an electoral defeat, which they attribute to their failure to address climate change, a serious electoral defeat, and or, and more, more effectively, a change of heart on the part of the Murdoch press. 
So if Lachlan Murdoch were to decide that we should have a integrated policy on climate and energy, the coalition would turn on a dime because ultimately what enables them the right to sustain their utterly irrational counterproductive position is the support and amplification they get in the right-wing media, which so many of their supporters uh, listen to and watch. That, that, sure. that, that, that's, so, so basically, I... the policy, the climate policy of Australia is held hostage by that group. And it is, mm. you know, it is so counterproductive. The consequence is not only do we have higher emissions, but we are paying higher prices for energy. Sure than we otherwise would. And everybody in the energy sector agrees with that. I mean, that sure. is the, you know, if you talk to the, the big electricity, you know, retailers, this is what they've been saying for years. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. I don't think you've contradicted what I was saying. I mean, I mean basically, this is, this is a matter of the survival of the human species on this planet, dealing with the, the challenge of the climate emergency. Oh, well, I, and I you're saying... You said that this party, as it stands, is unable to deal with this issue. So I said, so this party is incompatible with the continuation of human life on this planet. I think we agree on that. I think what you're saying, I'm hearing you really clearly. You don't want to say that. That's fine. That's my job to put it in those terms. Exactly. You put words in your mouth. I'll put words in my mouth. Sure. Okay. But, you know, I mean, we do honest government ads, so I'm just translating here. Anyway, let's move on. I want to to move on to the, the resources sector. So we've spoken mm-hmm. a bit about the right-wing faction. The other big player, as you said, is the mining is the, is the mining and resources sector, um, which, as you said, you can totally understand why they're pushing for this. At least there we understand. Yeah, now, yeah. the NEG was a case study in how the mining and resources sector exercises huge influence on the federal government, as well as Murdoch, as well as the right-wing faction, but specifically I want to talk about them. We've seen it happen before. They got rid of Rudd over the mining tax. They got rid of Gillard over the Clean Energy Act, got rid of you over the NEG. And in exchange, we get Abbott and Morrison, who are in total industry people. I'd like you to help us understand how, do, how does this happen? How does such a small sector control not just our policy, but who is our prime minister? And more specifically, what does it look like in the party room when you're discussing energy and climate policy? I mean, we know what Murdoch thinks. It's on the front page. But when the doors close on the party room, is Santos and BHP literally in the room, either directly or by some degree of separation because of the MPs that are in that room? Can you give us a little bit of an insight behind those doors? What happens? How does the resource sector exercise that influence? Okay, I think I think this is where we will disagree. Uh, I think there are players in the fossil fuel sector who are very politically influential and very um, opposed to effective action on climate change. And I mean, Gina Reinhardt is obviously one, and you know, Clive Palmer is you know famously another. But the big miners uh, are actually quite progressive on climate policy. I mean, you mentioned BHP. BHP has been arguing for putting a price on carbon for years, well over a decade. Um, the, there is a tendency on the left, and, I, and I, again, I'm not just making, it, not, not making this in a critical way, just as an observation. I think there's a tendency on the left to look at politics naturally through a Marxist prism and attribute motivations essentially to economic, you know, economic factors. Uh, and the reality is that the opposition to action on climate change is for the most part irrational nowadays. I mean, it honestly is irrational. I mean, the, the reason 
there are no barriers, there are no legal barriers to building coal-fired power stations, but nobody's building them, right? I mean, if, if, if climate change was proved to be a complete fraud and uh, it had nothing, you know, we suddenly discovered carbon dioxide had and methane had no impact on warming the planet, you still wouldn't build a new coal-fired power station because sure. renewables plus storage are cheaper. Sure. So, 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 so there is a sort of an irrational populist anti-science thing going on uh, on the right of politics uh, and supported, you know, in the in the Murdoch media in particular. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, to best far as I know, doesn't own any coal mines or, you know, uh, gas fields, uh, but he is the most prominent um, amplifier of climate denialism, you know, in the media landscape. So, so I think I guess what I'm saying to you is, you don't see the 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 arguments, the economic arguments, insofar as there are any put, are basically are, are either based on utterly outdated, you know, data in the sense that you know that people are saying, oh, renewables are more expensive than coal. Well, they were, you know, 20 years ago, but they're not today. Or they are sectoral or sectoral regional. So you know, uh, politicians from uh, North Queensland and Central Queensland, for example. Argue they see you know things like uh, Adani and and so forth and the coal coal sector there as being vitally important for employment and jobs, yeah. And that's so that's part of it. But yeah. but really the, the, at the heart of it all is the essential sort of loopiness of this opposition to taking effective action on climate change. Now the good now you know the good thing is. The good thing is that Morrison knows it's loopy, right? And Frydenberg knows it's loopy, but they're trying to survive and manage a party that has a very influential element in it uh, who are prepared to, you know, blow the joint up, basically. So the, um, you know, the, okay. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it is, it's a, it, look, it, it, it is so frustrating. I mean, there's a passage in my book where I, refer to a meeting with some of these guys where they're t demanding that I fund new coal-fired power stations and I asked them why and they said it's cheaper and I asked them for some, you know, what their assumptions were and they didn't have any, right? They didn't have, so that it, it was just, there was, it was a fact-free assertion on mm -hmm. their part. And Bridget McKenzie, who was then the deputy leader of the National Party, uh, was also at the meeting, and after all the men left, she hung back and she said to me, "Don't worry about the nut. They're not. They're not interested in the numbers, PM. It's religion, right? Ideology so and uh, and idiocy, as you as you yeah, I think your, ideology your, and idiocy. That's is, right. Is exactly your right. words? And it is. It is. It is. It is so. I want to move it's as frustrating as it is baffling. You, you, the, my next question might give you an opportunity to talk about that, but I just want to note, um, just very briefly, and, and you don't need to respond to this because I do want to move on, but um. You didn't tell me what happens behind closed doors, um, you know, uh, in the party room. Oh, no, no, and, and, and also, I just want to say, with the Marxist perspective... Party room, Giordano, there's nothing yeah. that happens in the party room that isn't reported in the media. I mean, okay. it's the most public right. uh, forum. I mean, right. all of the arguments, you know, there are... It's like, it's you know, people like Craig Kelly and George Christensen, all of the... Mm. Is the loopy stuff they say publicly, they say in the party room. Can the coalition agreement be made public then as well? Or is that not? 
Well, no, it never has been, but it's honestly, it's a very benign. Okay. Uh, it's a All very. Right. I, 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 I can tell you. I can tell you the only thing that the coalition agreement, which has been around for a long time, that's a, that basically the principles of it are very straightforward. You know, the leader of the national party is the deputy prime minister. Uh, ministries are allocated on the ratio of you know how many you know, members are in the party room. So if the Nats have... Sure, but if know, it's so banal, why can it be made public? I don't understand why it's a secret document. Well, but... well I mean, it just, it just never has been, but it is hmm. honestly, there's nothing... Um... As we say here, cool and normal. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it yeah, it seems yeah, very dodgy no, from no, the outside. It genuinely is, it genuinely is uh, innocuous. Okay. Um, and with the Marxist perspective, I, I hear what you're saying. I feel like there's an element of that. It's, it's you know, people who only see things through that sort of materialist perspective, I can understand, but I think it's fair to it's say that... that the... But by the way, it's completely rational. I mean, you, you, it is one of the things I, I have often struggled to understand is the irrationality of politics. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I always assumed that people would act more or less in their you know, in their own perception, rational perception of their mm. self-interest, and they, but they don't always do that. I mean, and politics, I think, in many respects, is getting less rational all the time. So let me set you up for that, because my next question, um, and this is really kind of my last question on climate, and then, and then I do want to ask you one more thing before we wrap up, but um, what's your advice? You've been through all of this. You've given us the historical sort of overview. You've really gotten into some detail. What is your advice to someone who wants to become the prime minister? and pass climate legislation. They're out there right now somewhere. Hopefully that future PM is listening. What's your advice mm. to them right now to pass meaningful climate change legislation in Australia? Well, you, you need, you, you basically need, um, you, you, you really, well, <laughs> you need to win government. You need to be leading, you, are, you need to be, you need to have the a majority of members of the House of Representatives supporting you, uh, and you need to have a um, the ability to get it through the Senate. That's the practical requirement. The question, I suppose, is, is that, can that be done within the uh, construct of the coalition? Um, yes. You know, I, I, I think ultimately, uh, you know, there's got to be, you know, you need to have a change in personnel. Now, here's the problem, though. In many respects, the membership of the Liberal Party is becoming more conservative, you know, and you know this is a this is a uh, a real difficulty when you you know when you get I mean one of the um, uh, guys who Queenslanders who vote supported Dutton, so a guy called Ted O'Brien who's a very progressive fellow, he's at one point was chairman of the Australian Republican movement, you know, in the, after, in the years after the referendum. Uh, very smart. Uh, he's a member for Fairfax, which is, you know, on the Sunshine Coast. And he said he justified supporting Dutton because he felt he had no choice, given the attitude of his branch members. And he said they listened to Alan Jones and Peter Credlin and so forth, Sky News and and they, it's like those people are having a branch meeting with my supporters every day. So it's it's really a sort of a systemic problem because you know the 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 I, I guess you know what what I would like to see. I mean, if if I was, you know, I would like to see somebody, and maybe this is what the Labor Party would do, 
is to campaign for on a fully costed Green New Deal as a platform. Um, Which is what the Greens are doing at the moment. I mean, the, the problem with the Greens is that inevitably they will not be taken seriously on an economic basis. I mean, you need to have something. You need to have a plan that is supported by business, that is supported by credible uh, third-party economists. It's got to be one that is very doable. The, the Greens, I'm afraid to say, are, have been among the worst wreckers. Uh, they have done more damage. They've done as much damage to climate policy as the right wing in the coalition. I mean, if the Greens had supported Rudd's CPRS back in 2009, it would have passed. And again, it would be part of the part of the furniture. They are they are the classic example of people who who put their own uh, electoral advantage, their own conception of the perfect, ahead of the uh, uh, of the good. And I, I, I honestly, I, I think they've got a shocking track record. They've actually betrayed everything they stand for again and again. I hear this line a lot. Um, I see it a lot in the comments of our videos. And, uh, well, you hear it and it's also true. Well, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because there are different ways of remembering that period of history. I don't want to take us back into that, but just again for the record, um, you know, yes, they voted against the CPRS, but then they supported Gillard to pass a much, much better pol climate policy uh, in 2010 that was much more progressive... So, I, I you know, which then got, got burned down by Tony Abbott. <laughs> I don't think, look, look, the important thing with an emissions trading scheme was to get one set up. Because once you got it set up, you could then amend it, you could vary it, hmm. and you inevitably would. But that's what, that's, what, that's what Gillard did. But as you said, she yeah, made the mistake yeah, of yeah. calling it a tax. Julia, Julia's, well, Julia had a couple of problems. I mean, one, she had Kevin you know, white-anting her and seeking to overthrow her from within, which is, uh, you know, is always bad. She, you know, she was a minority government. And as I said, she, she'd made that quite unforced error of describing an emissions trading scheme as a carbon tax, which, I mean, could have been innocuous. You know, I mean, you, you, I can understand someone saying, oh, yeah, you could call it a tax, you could call it something else, you know, call it what you will. But the problem is she'd made that pledge mm. that there wouldn't be a carbon yeah. tax. And so the minute she said, she then, and, and remember how Abbott's broken promises came back to haunt him. I mean, you know, I, no one ever accused me of breaking any election promises from 2016. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is I didn't, I made very few. I was very, very careful, <laughs> you know, but these grandiloquent promises, um, Sure. We'll always come back and haunt you. Well, we're going to move on. Um, I, I, that's one thing that I really disagree with is, uh, is the, the, the condemnation of the Greens um, uh, approach. Um, but that's something we'll have to have to have to leave and, and move on. No, no, no. But, well, do you think? Well, hang on. Just let me put mm -hmm. this back to you. Mm -hmm. Do you think we would be better off as a nation if the CPRS had been passed into law in two thousand and nine? Yes or no? I'm not sure how to how to answer that because um, yes, no, yes well, or no, you well, can say yes or well, no. Well, with the yeah, I suppose yes. In hindsight, knowing that okay, a much better okay. policy, which and was then introduced, was going to get burned down. There two, yes, there were, two, there were two players that prevented it being passed. One was the Greens, because it wasn't effective enough. Yeah, with Abbott and sure. the you know the the sort of coalition you know uh, after the change of leadership. So my my simple point is. 
that the Greens could have said, yes, we'll pass this, and then, and then come, I mean... And then we'll ratchet it up, yeah. All the no, time. Sure, yeah, sure, but, you know, but what, they did, what they did instead is... What they, ...which is not perfect. Yeah. And you say, okay, I mean, every opposition does this. I mean, we did it in opposition, Labor does it. You say, okay, we'll, you know, yeah, we don't, we don't entirely approve of this bill. We think it's imperfect in many ways, but we'll pass it and we'll, you know, come back and amend it or improve it in the light of circumstances. Sure. And that's a perfectly defensible, rational thing to do. Sure. But that, no, was, and- a, that was a gigantic missed, mixed, missed opportunity because if I could just... I just re- this is a really sure. this is a really important one because you see the thing about Rudd with the CPRS is that Rudd had or you know ETS you know Kevin had to rename everything to you know so that he could Im- pretend he invented it but but the thing about it was he had the legitimacy of a massive electoral mandate. I mean he had gone to the election, he'd said I'm going to introduce an emissions trading scheme. He'd won the election. And if it had been passed, I can tell you what would have happened was the coalition would have then said, okay, it's done. You know, it would have been like Labor with the GST. Labor opposed the GST and then they mumbled and, you know, Beasley at one point said he was going to roll it back, which was stupid. And uh, But it would be part of the landscape. The problem that Julia had, and look, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of Julia and I've defended her you know, and on, on many occasions, particularly from a lot of these shocking misogynistic attacks from people like Alan Jones and others. But I think the, mis- the problem that she had was that she was not seen to have a mandate for it because she had not gone sure. to the election proposing an ETS, number one, and the only thing she'd actually said in a definitive way was we won't have a carbon tax. And then she introduces an ETS for which she did not have an, a mandate uh, and then mistakenly characterises it as a carbon tax for which she, if anything, had a mandate not to introduce, you know. So it was the worst of all worlds. So you had Kevin in 09 had a legitimate mandate to introduce an ETS. Julia in, you know, 2011, 12, whatever, uh, lacked that legitimacy. And that was, you know, that was the fundamental problem that she had. Look, I give her full marks for having a go. And and as I said, she, you know, there's a lot to admire about Julia mm. Gillard. But the circumstances she was in were clearly very, very tenuous sure. and did not have the same political legitimacy that Rudd had in 09. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, unlike many interviewers, I don't like to interrupt because I think it's like you've got a flow of thought and I, and I want to let you talk. I think, but I think it's important to, this is an important historical It is. Point. I, I think we 100% agree with that. So, I, you know, I want to let you talk. But the downside of that is that we're running a little bit short of time. So please just, give, just if you can, just give me a little bit. I'll uh, be very quick. Okay. Um, yeah. Give me a little bit, a couple more minutes because I just want to ask you um, two more things. Um in your recent Crikey interview, you said that one of the biggest problems you see in today in today's world is that the media doesn't hold governments to account. I think those those are your words. You said one of the biggest problems, media yeah. doesn't hold governments to account. Someone who has held governments to account is Julian Assange. In 2010, mm-hmm. you wrote some things about him when you were in opposition. In the Sydney Morning Herald article in 2010, you wrote, I note that my colleague, Senator George Brandis, has described Assange's actions as morally reprehensible, but not legally actionable. 
And you said, I cannot see how he could be said to have breached any Australian law, and I understand that it is not alleged he has broken any American law. In another article the following day, you said, um, one may well ask whether Gillard's denunciations against Assange would be so shrill if the documents had been handed to a powerful newspaper group like the Australian. Would Gillard be accusing Rupert Murdoch of high crimes and misdemeanors? Assange, this is still your words, Assange is an Australian citizen. No matter how much the government disapproves of his actions, it should be made clear that he is entitled to return to Australia. So the situation is now dire. That same Assange you mentioned in 2010 is now in a maximum security prison, not for um, anything other than publishing. This is, is you know, he's accused of uh, breaching the Espionage Act in the, in the US for his publication yeah. activities. He's in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. The UN Rapporteur on Torture described the symptoms as consistent with exposure to psychological torture and trauma. He has no communication with, very little communication with his lawyers and doctors fear he might die. And if he's extradited to the US, faces a lifetime in maximum security for the crime of publishing information that holds, that holds governments to account, which is what you said, you know, is, is what we need. So my question is, now that you're not in office and are free to say what you want, what do you have to say about Assange's situation, your fellow Australian citizen who went and held governments to account? Well, you know, the again, you're, you know, there. I believe that government should be held to account, right? Uh, plainly, uh, but also uh, there are governments are entitled to protect or seek to protect uh, national security material, uh, the material that the Americans uh, take the view that the material that uh, Assange obtained and which he released into the public domain uh, really, um, uh, what would I say, uncritically in the sense that he didn't, you know, he didn't seek to mitigate the harm that would be done to uh, individuals whose identities were exposed. And I so think forth. that's disputed uh, quite well, clearly. Okay. Well, I mean, that, well, these are all points that he can no doubt sure. make if, he, if, if the matter ever gets tried. But, you know, the, saying that you hold governments to account doesn't mean that somebody should be, you know, entitled to take the, you know, the design of the latest jet fighter and uh, post no, 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 on but, the internet. But you yourself said, and that's why I quoted those passages, that, you know, he did nothing to break any laws and if it had been published by Rupert Murdoch, no, 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 it would be no, fine. Giordano, no, no. with, with respect, I mean, you're quoting a lot of stuff out of context. I mean, the point, as I recall it, was a speech I gave at the Sydney University Law School, was that Assange had not broken any law of Australia. Or, or uh, and I don't, I, no, I don't. Well, I, I mean, it, this is what's I mean, written in your article, Sydney. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that may, that may, whether that's right or not, um, I'm not whether that was right or not, I'm not sure. That the, the context with respect to American law, I mean, that's obviously a matter that's now in dispute, you know, 10 years later. But the, but the point I was really making was that he is an Australian citizen and he was entitled to return. To Australia now, the the problem that that he you know he is uh, you know he got himself into this issue with Sweden and the extradition to Sweden and he didn't want to be extradited to Sweden over a uh, over a uh, a sort of sexual uh, assault claim I think it was. Uh, but just keep in mind, all of this is about his publication of the um, the, the Manning files. So it has nothing to do with that. He's he's wanted in you know for extradition to the US now for mm. publishing. So it, the the Swedish 
cases, um, it's it's a separate it's a separate issue. Yeah, no, I, no, I understand that. But I guess, are you sympathetic? Are you sympathetic at all to his current situation? I mean, is there something like, for example, would you consider signing a joint statement of support with with former prime ministers and foreign ministers from Australia um, to at least um, well, well, treat him better because he's he's a publisher. That's that is that is yeah, what he's yeah. done. Maybe the degree to which he held governments to account, you don't quite. You, that's not how you would want to see it done. But you know, that's basically what he is. He's an Australian publisher. Well, look, the let, let, well, let, let, let me answer these questions. Sure. Firstly, should Assange be treated humanely and decently when he's in custody in the United Kingdom? Of course, he should be. Great. And the Australian High Commission in London will have a consular officer who is seeking to do that as they would with any Australian who's, you know, got themselves into trouble with the legal system in the, in the or, you know, the prison system in the UK. So that's the first point. Um, has he committed an offence under Australian law? Well, as far as I'm aware, no. And that was certainly my view in 2010. Uh, so there would be no bar to him, certainly no reason why he uh, would not be able to come to Australia. Um, will he be extradited to the United States uh, that remains to be seen. Um, you know, there are, I mean, and this is, you know, there are principles in the law, which, and it may well be, this is one that's relevant in his case, that uh, countries will not enforce the public law of another country. Um, and, you know, that's one of the, that was the principal reason, or the most cited reason the High Court of Australia ultimately found in favour of Peter Wright in the Spycatcher case. But, you know, trying to paint Julian Assange as some kind of, you know, heroic, uh, you know, martyr for free speech without um, any blemish uh, is a little bit uh, yeah. unreal. No, 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 that's, and and, and that's not what I'm trying to do. I think what, what I'm really, what I'm, what, the reason I've tried to focus it on the fact that, you know, the, the charges are all relating to his 2010 publications, nothing to do with Sweden, nothing to do with Trump's election, because yeah. these things get conflated. Yeah. Really, it's about the criminalization of national security journalism. That is fundamentally what it is. And no, that no, is no, why people are taking on. it so seriously that this is, sure, this could set a precedent. Laws, if, sure. if you... If, you know, if you take the, you know, there are laws. Uh, Which you say in Australia, he, he hasn't in, broken, in, yes. <clears throat> what I'm saying is there are laws in, mm. in every country to prohibit uh, the unauthorised publication sure. of, you know, national security uh, material, classified material. And, and, of course, there are always arguments about public getting interest. the balance right. Yeah, that's right. And public interest and, you know, whistleblowers. Yeah. I'm not suggesting, you know, but but you can't, uh, at ju just as there are, you know, businesses are entitled to protect so, their confidential information. I mean, if, if okay, someone <clears throat> your confidential, you know, your medical records... Uh, no, it's completely different. Public. We're talking that this is individual privacy versus government uh, versus government people's right to know about what their governments are doing shouldn't be conflated. Yes. But can I just yes. say can I just say this because you, you getting, getting we agree balance right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. No, I understand what you're saying. Um, but we agree on the fact that he should be treated humanely. He is not being treated humanely. The UN rapporteur okay. has said that. Would you mm. and this is just a yes or no question. Would you consider signing a joint statement of support for him for his treatment to be, um, uh, you know, taken care of? Basically, he's he could die in this situation. Uh, would you consider signing a, a formal statement of support on on, on the matter of his physical and, and and psychological treatment? Well, Giordano, 
I'll, I'll consider anything that somebody, you know, if someone wants to put something to me and with all of the circumstances, I'll obviously consider it Great. carefully. But okay. I'm not, you know, again, I'm not. No, I'm not, gonna, I'm not asking a, you. No, no, that's I'm fine. I'm not asking you a blank check. I don't know what your proposed statement no, is. No, I don't, I, don't I don't have one, but I think people hearing this because but, there is a big, I, the, people are trying to help him. And uh, if the people who, yeah. who need to hear this hear this, they'll be in touch with you, I'm sure. Well, they, I mean, I, I actually know um, some of his lawyers, uh, you know, reasonably well. So, and I have spoken to them over the years. So I'm sure they, they okay. certainly know how to reach Great. Fantastic. Malcolm, um, I don't want to take up more of your time. We're just going to end with a very quick rapid fire yes or no questions just okay. to take us out. Okay. Right. Um, so my first one was, do you have fiber to the premises? You've already said no. So we skipped to number okay. two. This is a yes or no question. Are you happy to see the, now that it's been ruled unlawful, are you happy to see the RoboDebt scheme gone? Well, it's gone. I mean, I, I, if, it was unlaw, if it was unlawful, I'm happy to see it gone. You have, it, yes, great. I mean, if it's, if, if, if yeah. a, any unlaw, anything that is, is, the government shouldn't be operating schemes that are uh, beyond power or, okay. you know, are unlawful. All right. Are you happy to see the Medivac legislation gone? Uh, I think I'll, I think, look, I'll, uh, I, I'm not, it's not a question of being happy or unhappy. I, I think, you know, my, my, you're very bad at this. Interest, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, but these are stupid questions. No. You know, the, the, the yes or no questions. Happy about, mm. about things. I mean, look, as far as the refugees, the situation is concerned, the, the goal, my goal was to get all of those asylum seekers resettled. We didn't put them there. The Labor Party put them there uh, to get them resettled. And we got, and you know, most of them have now been resettled, but the job is is not uh, completed. And so I I wouldn't want to run a, um, a commentary on how the government is managing that because a lot of it has to be done in a very, um, well, you know, I so mean, it just- it's, I'll take that as a pass it, then. Take that as a pass. Yeah. Okay. Number four, when Australia finally becomes a republic, wink, wink, should we implement a constitutional bill of rights or a federal charter like every other Western liberal democracy? Uh, it's a yes I'm or no question. The answer is, the an well, uh, again, Giordano, it depends <laughs> what's a, in it. Uh, sure. Um, it depends you, what's in it. Just, okay. just so, humor so, me. So, <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm okay. not going to give you blank checks. You know, you, it depends on what's but, in but it. Okay, general, I mean, but like on principle, make, on principle, a constitutional bill of rights should that be a thing once we become a republic? And what's in it? Okay. There are rights in the constitution now, right? We've got important constitutional rights now, but it depends what you actually write in it. So okay. the, you know, the detail does matter. Pass. Uh, is there a public interest reason why witness K and Bernard Clary should be prosecuted? Yes or no? Uh, well, again, I, I mean, I'm not going to. I'll pass on that. I mean, the, the decision, the decision to, the decision to prosecute him is one that's taken by the government, and I'm not going to, not going to run a commentary on that. All right, pass. The secret coalition agreement you signed with the leader of the Nats, Barnaby Joyce, does, did this agreement tie your hands on climate policy? Yes or no? No. Okay, no. good. Finally, we got, no. a, we got a straight answer. Okay, good. No, I mean, it absolutely, there was no, you know, that, that 
All right, no, Why that's it? fine. That's good. I mean, no, but, no, but Jordana, just 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 to be clear, um, as I, I you know set this out in my book, I mean, when I became leader in 2015, I agreed with the Nats, with, with Warren Trust, in fact, uh, that we would not change our policy on the plebiscite. That's to say, we'd go, we you know we would keep us our policy out of a plebiscite on same-sex marriage, and we would not change our climate policy prior to the election. Okay, so that was the and and we didn't. Okay, now you say these some of these are stupid questions, but this one definitely isn't. Are you a lizard alien from the constellation of Draco or Zeta Reticuli? <laughs> yeah, well, that is definitely a stupid question, uh, but I'll be... you better answer <laughs> it because are you? are you are you I've got to. <laughs> if you don't answer it, this is going to spawn a thousand conspiracies. Yeah, clearly, so clearly, clearly not. I'm a I'm a, I'm absolutely. A, Human being. Absolutely. Very much a standard issue homo sapiens. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for clarifying that. And last one, um, in retrospect, do you think you should have started your own political party? Um, no, I don't. Um, but, I mean, gosh, over the years, so many people have urged me to do so, and, and, and oddly enough still do. But I think the, the you know, could, could Australia have a new political, a big new political party that would get big enough to win government, I'm not sure. Or enough members yeah. on the crossbench. It doesn't always have to be a government-forming party, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, well, I mean, you know, there's a, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, the thing that the Liberal Party needs to reflect on is that there is a number of hitherto very safe centre-right seats, you know, Liberal-slash-national seats, which are occupied by small L liberal women. Mayo in South Australia, Indi uh, in Victoria, uh, and of course Warringah in New South Wales. And it's only, you know, by a few votes, it could have been, you could have added to that uh, Karen Phelps in Wentworth as well. And, you know, what that tells you is what that should tell the Liberal Party is that there is a smaller liberal constituency that takes climate change very seriously, uh, that is prepared to vote for somebody other than the Liberal Party and uh, but, but, but does not, you know, may not vote for Labor or the Greens. Um, you know, so sure. the, um, that is, uh, that's, uh, that is, and that, you know, that I guess if you were making the case for another party, which I'm not, you know, that's something you would point to. I mean, if you think about mm -hmm. it, in a, in a parliament, in a House of Representatives of 151 seats, um, where every seat counts, naturally, uh, to have three safe liberal seats held by smaller liberal independents, you know, those those metropolitan seats, uh, smaller liberal seats, I think it's, there's a very strong message there. Malcolm, thank you so much for sharing um, your yeah, thoughts and coming on the podcast. Sorry to disappoint you on not letting you uh, put words into my mouth, but uh, but that's uh, that's all part of the fun of a interview. Absolutely, I hope I hope that's not um, uh, how it comes across. I, I you know I've, no, no, I, no. I, I I try to because um, I think ultimately, as I said at the start, I really wanted to um, have a conversation with you that's solution oriented. Um, uh, we've gone into the past, we've talk, spoken about things, we disagree on stuff, um, and that's, I wasn't expecting anything else, but I think what we really agree on, just to round it off the conversation, 
is that the climate emergency is a serious issue that needs to be taken seriously um, as soon as, I mean, immediately, that the current government as it stands isn't able to do that. We need a Green New Deal. Uh, whether it's the coalition that does that, that would be wonderful. I would you know, support that. If not the Labour Party um, or with, uh, you know, um, or with, with the Green support or whatever, matter. it doesn't matter. We need to get it done. And I feel like that's the message people need to hear. Yeah. I mean, ideally, ideally, I, I, I think... I think that you should be, this is something you should be able to get real bipartisan support for. But I, I don't think the Greens, see the Greens, the problem with the Greens is that they want to product differentiate themselves from Labor. They're actually not interested in the coalition. You know, they are a, their interest is in peeling votes away from Labor more than anything else. Uh, but we are in a position for the first time to have our cake and eat it too. You know, you can have mm. cheap electricity and green electricity. So, so what's what what is the delay? And I think exactly. it's, it's this it's this you know baffling uh, problem of combination of you know uh, vested interests and this sort of um, way in which climate has become a values or identity issue on the right. You know, whereas it, it's just a question of physics, it should be no more, you know, people saying they believe in climate change. Well, it's like saying I believe in gravity. You know, if you don't believe in gravity, you know, um, take care testing your, your point of view by jumping from a high place. You might find that your disbelief is, is uh, fallacious. It's a good analogy, and um, I hope the yeah. right people hear that, especially people you know who vote liberal, who vote for the nationals, um, uh, especially people who are on the front line of climate change, farmers, you know, who, who you know who are also wearing the brunt of it all. Look, there are so many other questions to ask you, but I really okay. want to thank you for your uh, time and also for the most important answer of all, which is confirming that what we do is genuine satire. So that really, you know, we can um, carry on now, um, knowing that we won't have a SWAT team coming down any day soon. Okay. Thank you so all much. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. I want to thank Malcolm Turnbull for being so generous with his time and also a reminder that his book, A Bigger Picture, is out now. It's actually a very good read. I do want to say, though, that I think some of the comments that Malcolm made about the Greens were pretty harsh and unfair. These are comments in relation to their role in climate policy in Australia. So I think it's fair to offer the Greens a right of response. So if the leader of the Greens is out there, Adam Bant, if you're listening and hearing this, um, here's your invitation to come onto the podcast if you'd like to respond to some of the comments that Malcolm made in this interview. Well, there you go, people. You wanted some debates, so here we go. I think these are actually really important debates. And as, as Malcolm said, this is really important history and we need to understand what is happening. Okay, that's all for now. As always, I want to thank our sponsors. Just kidding, we don't have any because we're 100% independent and ad-free, and that's thanks to our patrons. If you if you like the work that we do and you'd like to support our honest government ads, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash thejuicemedia or at thejuicemedia.com forward slash support for other options. You've been listening to the Juice Media Podcast with me, Giordano, and I'll catch you soon for more genuine satire, as approved by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Take care. Right. So are you are you are you in the shot, Giordano? Yes, I am. Can you see me? I, I can, but you know, just just a bit of guidance. <laughs> if you close the door behind you, oh yes, and turn the blinds down, then 
then and, and turn those blinds down. The problem is you've got the light from behind you. you actually, need the light coming towards uh, you. How's that? I don't. Uh, is that better? Uh, yeah. Okay. It's being helpful. Such Thank a you. handsome fella. <laughs> everyone to see you. I love that. I'm getting um, advice on how to do uh, this uh, from uh, former prime minister. All right. Yeah. So you're right. There is a shadow on my face, but um, mm, it's a, right. people, people will look at you and not me. So um, welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Malcolm Turnbull.